Welcome to another Breakfast with Jesus, where we are journeying through or beginning our journey through the book of Ezekiel. So this is the second of the meditations, uh, born out of uh, the daily conversations that uh, Anne and I have um, around the scriptures. Let me repeat, I'm not attempting to give a coherent commentary on the book of Ezekiel. I'm not really equipped to do that. These are more episodes, insights uh, that um, came out of our conversation. And, and I think there's a very strong theme that as we're looking at uh, some of these judgmental books in the Old Testament, um, we're looking at it through the lens of apocatastasis, you know, cosmic redemption and the primary quality of God and his relationship with the cosmos is one of love, not justice. Um, it's a theme that's really strong for us in gospel conversations, but an apparent challenge to that theme is the, is the Old Testament, or at least the stereotypical view of the Old Testament, where you get the angry God. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel are two candidates for that. So it was a great interest to Anne and I as we read it through to find something rather different there. Ezekiel 6 is the beginning of the book, um, and it's where Ezekiel gets some of his early oracles um, against the, the um, disobedient uh, Israelites and is prophesying, in fact, the end of um, the, the end of Jerusalem, its destruction. So, so this was written prior to uh, the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 BC. It's pretty heavy stuff. I mean, I won't read the whole lot, but it's got things in it like this. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, set your face toward the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them and say, you mountains of Israel, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, I will bring a sword upon you and I will destroy your high places. Your altars shall become desolate and your incense altars shall be broken. And I will cast down your slain before your idols and I will lay the dead bodies of the people of Israel before their idols. And I will scatter your bones around your altars. Wherever you dwell, the city shall be waste and the high places ruined so that your altars will be waste and ruined, your idols broken and destroyed. Um, and so on. I mean, it's, it's pretty apocalyptic, apparently violent language. Um, but let's just, first of all, position it um, in the context, which is, uh, and to remind you of the rhetorical situation that Ezekiel was facing here, that his audience, his audience for this, were the exiles in, um, in Babylon. Um, and those exiles were part of the first um, exile to Babylon, which took place um, probably about, I think, gee, was, I don't know, five years, 10, 15 years before the final destruction and which uh, was in, in which Nebuchadnezzar um, took Jehoiakim, the 18-year-old king, 
and, and several thousand of his entourage uh, captive and, and took them into Babylon. So the hope, Nebuchadnezzar's hope was this would you know, cut rebellion off at the head and uh, without him having to completely obliterate the nation. And, and what Nebuchadnezzar planned to do was put a puppet um, governor or king um, in Jehoiakim's place. And that puppet uh, was called Zedekiah. And Zedekiah actually uh, turned out to be uncontrollable by Nebuchadnezzar. He turned against him. Um, but the particular audience Ezekiel's talking to are those you know, several thousands. They would have been upper class, educated, religious Jews, but they're in exile. Um, as far as they were concerned, Jehoiakim was still the rightful king. Um, and, and, and in the first half of the book, importantly, it's an it's a, it's a interregnum or um, a no man's land between the first and the second exile. So there was still hope that it could be a temporary exile, that uh, they could restore the um, good fortunes of Israel. So that was, that was their situation. Um, now, the passage I've just read out, um, and passages like that, are, are generally taken by modern evangelical Christians and lifted out of their context and, and really uh, used to underwrite the picture of a wrathful God a wrathful God um, who is going to judge sin. I mean, the NIV notes in chapter 6, uh, one of the NIV study Bibles that we've got, is a good example. You know, God's judgment of sin is certain, but this Ezekiel passage shows that God's purpose for judgment was not to punish so much as it was to bring the people back to himself. God wanted them to acknowledge he's the Lord, God still desires all people everywhere to know him as the only true God. He has sent warnings of judgment so people might have an opportunity to turn to him and he has provided forgiveness through the sacrifice of Christ. And there's a lot about that that's true, but it's just slightly off because essentially it's picking this up and bringing it into the modern uh, world. And um, if you do that, I'm going to well imagine people reading this and saying, well, what, what kind of God is this? Um, because certainly it, um, it seems to suggest judgment and people could go further and say, well, this is a, you know, an early picture of hell. And when I think people look at the H-E-L-L word and they look back in passages like this, they use passages like this almost subconsciously to um, enrich the idea of, of hell. Now, that's actually, um, that's actually wrong. Because the, one thing to bear in mind when you read this particular passage and, and, and most of the other passages that occur in, in Ezekiel, as well as Jeremiah, is they're very specific. They're not generalizing about some hell to come. They're specifically predicting the socio-political military defeat of Israel. And if one were to paraphrase what I've just read out, Ezekiel is saying to the exiles in, in Babylon, look guys, don't keep looking nostalgically back to Jerusalem in the hope that it'll all be all right and, and somehow or other we'll get back there. It's not. It's going to get exterminated. 
the extermination will be awful and that extermination, um, actually at the hands of the Babylonians, but that extermination will effectively wipe out the uh, idolatry um, in the land. So it's predicting 586 BC. And if we, as I said in my introduction, I just want to say it again, the introduction I mean was the talk I did before. What had actually happened clearly, if you, if you can try and get yourself back into the worldview and mindset of the Jews at this time, was a kind of a syncretism um, where they had one foot in Yahweh's camp and one foot in a pagan camp, and they were mixing them up terribly. Um, for instance, the, you know, part of the vision in the rest of Ezekiel is graf you know, graffiti in the temple, you know, that they, they, were, they were mixing up images, uh, idolatrous uh, cultic practices with the Jewish practices. So you just couldn't pull them apart anymore. They were just too entangled in their mind. Um, it was as if they got a big picture of God from Moses and couldn't accommodate it and then sucked it back into an ancient Near Eastern world, religious worldview that could somehow or other accommodate Yahweh. He might be the biggest and best, but he was still accommodated within that world. Now, if you think about that kind of worldview, and, and I, I mentioned last time about the importance of Josiah's reforms, they were the last ditch effort at reform and they didn't work. They could not eradicate this erroneous worldview that had the Jews still with one hand in idolatry and one hand not. Uh, as, I, as I read it through, I keep thinking of the words of Jesus about, you can't put new wine in old bottles. You can't try and patch an old cloth and putting new cloth on it. Um, and really that's what God faced. There was really no hope of renovation, reform, incremental improvement, that, because all the reforms would be still attached to um, what was an un, unreformed mind in, uh, in, in, in the majority of the Jews. The only way out was actually to wipe the slate clean, which is what 586 did. It was a kind of a death that wiped the slate clean. So that's what is being predicted in, in, in the words I just read out. And it was pretty awful. I mean, the siege of Jerusalem at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar was a terrible um, obliteration. It was savage. Um, it was awful, um, just like many other battles in the ancient world and in the modern world. So that was their, um, their real situation and context, which helps in reading chapter six, but I think we can go a bit further. Because um, what we are looking at uh, is what I call the Sin-Roth dynamic. There's two sides of the same coin. So, so one side is God's side, that's the Roth side, and the other side is the human side, and in this case, the Jewish side, which is the sin side. And there's an interaction between them. And understanding that interaction is very, very important. It, that interaction is paradigmatic. And I love Bulkakov's phrase, obviously not talking about Ezekiel, it's about the relationship of God to the world. That's the overarching question. What is the relationship of God to the world? And thus the relationship of God to the human being. And the sin-wrath dynamic is a perspective on that. 
Now the default view that I think we tend to have on that Sinros dynamic is the moral code view, which we've been critiquing in the main Gospel Conversations forums of late in the uh, Cross and Creation series. But the idea that the what you've got is a holy God, righteous, um, cannot admit sin in any way, shape or form. And on the other side, a disobedient people um, who need to be judged for their disobedience. Now, what's arbitrating that relationship is a moral code. It's a, it's a penal model where there's some arbitrary moral code that the disobedient people have transgressed and, and God is to some extent um, subordinate to. And within that model, you can, still working inside those coordinates of the moral code, you, you could go punitive or you could go restorative. Um, um, but even if you do go to a slightly softer view, which is, well, hang on, I mean, God's angry, sure, but his real reason is to get the people, um, is to restore them, which is certainly on the right track. Um, but that restorative view is still working inside the coordinates of, of, of a moral, moral code. And um, in behind the moral code, there's a very strong sense of a fair distance between us and God. Um, it's something, I mean, the article, the, the quote I just quoted from Bulgakov is an essay that Bulgakov wrote on St. Augustine and um, critiquing St. Augustine. I might give a summary talk of it one day. But his, his, his overarching critique of St. Augustine is that St. Augustine's vision of God was a despot. A despot, tyrant, whose interest in humanity was incidental. Because in the, in the moral code or uh, model, just God, disobedient people, well, that God could well be quite aloof from the disobedient people. Um, there's nothing intrinsically relational between God and the people in that model. It, it's a guessing game as to how much he cares. And I think all of us have this huge task to grasp how much God cares. Um, I think more and more that's the heart of the gospel. So let's dig a little bit deeper and actually look at what Ezekiel goes on to say here. And let's look at the sin side. Now, on, on, in this particular context, the sin side was idolatry. And that's actually what's being critiqued here. And I've just talked about that. It was syncretism. It was a terrible mixture of pagan practices with Yahweh. Um, and in the, if our view is the moral code, then what God is angry about is that idolatry breaks the law. And it's easy to see that in the Ten Commandments, that's one of the many laws that were broken. In which case, um, yep, we can see that as a moral code. But let's dig a little bit deeper. Uh, if we said idolatry is actually a form of adultery. And the text here is going to go on to say that um, because as God expands um, his, his explanation of his judgment, he says, uh, I will spare some, for some of you will escape. Then in the nations where you've been carried captive, those who escape will remember me, how I have been grieved by their adulterous hearts. 
which have turned away from me and by their eyes which have lusted after their idols. So the imagery that comes in again, and it comes in everywhere, and I talked about this in Jeremiah, is an imagery of adultery. Um, now, the sin of adultery is illuminating because it's a sin about a lost love, not the breaking of a moral code. I mean, you could say it's the breaking of a moral code for sure, but underneath it, it's the sin of rejection. Um, and loving another. And I think we, we can dig more deeply into that sin to illuminate what Bulkakov talked about, about the nature of the relationship between God and humanity and creation. Uh, as I've said in a previous talk, uh, idolatry as adultery from uh, reveals a different kind of God. He's, he's not positioned by that metaphor as a judge with a righteous moral code that has been transgressed and to which he um, clinically holds as the truth. Not posit he's, he's positioned as a jilted lover. So that's, that's altogether different. It's way beyond moral code. That's, that's, that's into relationship and love. And so it, it repositions this concept of sin, not as breaking a moral code, but breaking relationship. So that's interesting. That's interesting. And that's more tender. And, and in my talk on Jeremiah, uh, forget which chapter it was, but the, but the, but. The whole implication of that model is that God has, is like a cuckold, as I say. He's, he's been abandoned. He's been abandoned. Very, very vulnerable. Very vulnerable. But let's explore the adultery um, dramatic situation a little, little bit further because there's two ways you can look at this, and, and I think they're very different. The NIV translation, that's the one I just read out to you about it, was use the word grieved. It says, I have been grieved. By their adulterous heart. Now the word grieved can quickly become aggrieved, aggrieved, which means we can very quickly get into the idea of the husband's honour being aggrieved, reputations impinged, um, and in behind that model, which we see in, in a lot of um, you know fundamentalist societies today, the husband owns the spouse. He owns the spouse and no longer owns the spouse. So it's a tremendous breach of proprietorship. And frankly, behind that, we see a lot of domestic violence situations. So if you take the wrong view of the adultery metaphor, you can actually go right back to the abusive model. Terrible tyrant because the husband thought he owned the wife and he's uh, really, really furious because he's been aggrieved. Um, and what's in behind that is this concept of despotic ownership. But how things turn on a single word, the English Standard Version, which, as I think I've mentioned before, Ian Proven advised me is a far better translation, doesn't use the word grieved. And when we read it, when Anne and I read it, we just both stumbled across this word and thought, dear me, it just was a shock. It was a shock. Here's how the, and the verse I'm reading about is... Uh, 
verse 9. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they have where they are carried captive, how I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. So that's a shocking word to me. It's, 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 a, it's a very different psychology on the part of the husband. The husband is broken, broken. Um, the broken heart of being rejected, rejected, um, hurt because I'm not loved anymore. I'm I'm abandoned, and in in this conception, the adulterous party is free, free to go, free to go, and leave abandoned the broken um, husband. Uh, reminds me of an early episode of Ted Lasso when he's wife leaves him because she's just over him and he's just the forlorn look in his eye is just he doesn't fight it he can't he can't tell her to love him he can't he he's almost sympathetic to her but he just feels so unloved so we have two very different kind of conceptions behind the the adultery and i guess you'd be right to ask which conception is predominant theologically theologically well I believe um, that it's the second one, the broken heart. Um, I think, for instance, Ezekiel 16, which we'll get onto later, that's the most expanded um, uh, chapter in the Old Testament prophets on this model of um, sexual intimacy being um, spurned and God being hurt by it. And it's very intimate and, and vulnerable. And, and, and definitely the position of God there is, is the hurt one rather than the aggrieved one. Um, I think if we went even further, um, uh, in terms of uh, looking at a passage like this through Christ um, and the illumination of God's love in Christ would say, you know, if it's true that Jesus said that all the scriptures talked of him, then the broken God, the broken God on the cross um, would definitely authenticate the broken image in the adultery metaphor. And um, that, that God's whole desire is to win the relationship back um, and that, of course, is the story of, of redemption. So um, that's what I wanted to share on Ezekiel 6. Really, it all pivots on that one word, broken versus grieved. And to have a God who is broken by Israel, um, by their uh, love and preference for... Um, rival for, for other conceptions of God than the one given to him is a it's a metaphor that opens up a very different view of God to the angry despotic God of the Old Testament it opens up a view of God a um, broken which is really a pathway through to what was the ultimate 
incarnation of God in the cross at Calvary.